Good morning, family. Uh, again, welcome. My name is Matt Zrost. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we've been going through a series on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and today we're going to be addressing the topic of patience. And so uh, I'm going to go ahead and read here from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Again, that's James, chapter 5, 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And then Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, again, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for every good gift under the sun with which you have blessed us. Lord, we are a gifted people. We've been given your spirit, we've been given your son, and we have been given so much access to your word. Lord, what a privilege to have your word. What a privilege to sit under your word. So God, do this morning speak. Pray that you would open my mouth with words that would bring edification or strengthening to your body. Pray that you would open ears to hear your words, God, by your spirit. Pray that you would guard us from the enemy of our souls who would seek us to be discouraged and frightened, hateful and rebellious. Pray that you would grow us instead in the likeness of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you and we praise you and we ask these things in his strong name. Amen. Amen. Everything appears to change when we change. Right? Everything seems to be different when we change. Well, the last few weeks that uh, we've been working through the fruit of the Spirit, and here we've seen Paul give us two different outcomes of two fundamental but juxtaposed ways of living, right? The works of the flesh on the one hand and the fruit of the spirit on the other. This passage is really jolting though, right? For several reasons. Among them, the fact that Paul doesn't say fruits, plural, but fruit, singular. In the Greek, it's one word. It's one fruit, not many fruits. In other words, there's no disjointedness among these characteristics. They're all parts. They're all facets of one fruit. So we don't get the talk of like, I'm really patient, but you know, I'm just, God just didn't make me very self-controlled. No, if you have God's spirit, he did make you self-controlled. It's an incredible thing, but it's a jolting reality. And that's the whole point of the fruit of the spirit as we're talking about this is it's a a change in perspective. We've been changed. And so even when the world around us hasn't changed, the way that we see the world has changed. Fundamentally, when the Christian is taken from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light, 
one begins to see everything with new eyes. The, the old ways of, of the flesh, right, of rebellion, of lust and greed and licentiousness and the like, they begin to appear as they truly are. They're instances of death or an allegiance to things that lead to death, that don't lead to human flourishing and the good life. And directly alongside this comes this awakening of seeing things the way that God sees them, seeing God put in his rightful place and humans and ours, where we're called to steward the gifts, the gifts of God's good creation that he's given us to the praise of his name and for the joy of his people. The world's now a place where we get to practice love and find joy in the good gifts that God has given and experience peace in our varied relationships like what Andrew shared last week. Again, when we're changed, it's impossible for the things around us to be perceived the same. When we change, it seems that everything around us changes. The outlooks and the behavior of the flesh is absolutely at odds with that of the spirit. And if you have the spirit of Christ in you, you will be different. And you're promised that you can be different. Today though, we touch on one aspect of this fruit, one, one facet of this fruit that introduces tension. Okay? And this facet is just called patience, long suffering. And the tension comes because while one can practice any of the other fruits in an in a, you know, idyllic context, Right? We can love our immediate family or those that love us. Uh, you can have joy when things are going well, when everything's going ideal. We can exercise self-control and everyday disciplines and, and just things like that. It's impossible to practice patience outside of suffering. Get that. It's impossible to practice patience outside of suffering. Get that. Patience assumes suffering. And patience is what's required. It's, what, it's the fruit of the Spirit because we will be continually tempted toward impatience. Toward all things. Toward our circumstances, our situations. Toward other people. All the people in our lives. Our neighbors, our family, our friends. And even toward ourselves. Very often toward ourselves. It's often the hardest type of impatience that we experience. Now this hits us hard on several ways and I think it's more difficult in some sense for us as Westerners because we have so many means of being, of avoiding the need to be patient, right? The immediacy of, of internet connection, right? We open up our computer. I do this all the time. I go to a cafe and you open up your computer and you're waiting for the internet to connect and you type in a page and, you know, 2.6 seconds later, it's still not there and you're just like, piece of garbage. <laughs> you're, just, you're, just, you're just broken. You're like, why is this internet so slow? And, or food, right? Or relational commitments. We expect change. We expect things to happen so immediately because we have so many ways to avoid suffering, to avoid inconveniences in our culture, in our world. We're given, we get, we got clean water everywhere. So if the water shuts down for a day or the electricity shuts off because we have continuous access to electricity, those things shut off for a bit. It tests us. It frustrates us. And it feels like things are falling apart, that things are out of control. So on the one hand, as Westerners, we have this ability to sort of skip suffering, to avoid the need to exercise patience. And on the other hand, we medicalize the experience of suffering, the emotions that are experienced when we suffer. We think that the, the, the way that the world is supposed to be 
is supposed to be just great and jolly and joyful at all times. And so when we express things like depression or anxiety or just sadness, profound mourning, it doesn't become a thing that everybody experiences. Oh, well, something's wrong with you, so let's medicate it. There's million dollar, hundred million dollars of, 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 of cash that just gets put into this whole industry of trying to make people happy all the time. We fail to realize the redemptive value of suffering, the redemptive value of what it means to undergo hardship, not just in our own lives, but the redemptive value of what it means to walk with people who are suffering and to be patient with people who are suffering, what it means to be long-suffering. So I just got three points. They're pretty brief points, actually. Um, What is patience? The suffering of the Son and the patience of the Father. What is patience? The suffering of the Son and the patience of the Father. So first, what is patience? Um, Swiss philosopher Henri Frederick Amiel, he once said this. He said, "Uh, you desire to know the art of living, my friend? It is contained in one phrase, make use of suffering. (laughs) You desire to know the art of living, my friend. It is contained in one phrase, make use of suffering. If there's ever a countercultural quote from this man, not a believer. And now, my dear friends, as good a definition as any of the biblical concept of patience, to make good use of suffering. Patience is making good use of suffering, making good use of non-idyllic situations, making good use of these things get in our way, these seeming obstructions in our lives. But how does one make good use of suffering in the midst of suffering? And that's the challenge, right? It's easy to have the, the, the abstract, but when you're in the middle of it, that's the whole thing. That's why it's hard. That's why it's called suffering. It's because in the moment, it's actually difficult. <laughs> in the moment, it's actually really, really challenging to respond in a way that's honoring to God, that's honoring to our call as human beings, that's honoring to our call particularly as spirit-filled Christians, How does one make good use of suffering when in the midst of tremendous suffering? And I'm going to argue that what you have to have is a vision of life that gives coherence to the present chaos, the inconvenience, the suffering that you're going through. And it's not a vision that just goes into the future. It's a vision of the past. It's a vision. It's a big vision. It's a big picture. When you're stuck in the moment and you can't see back to what has happened before leading up to it, or forward to what this particular hardship might be actually leading to, it'll be impossible. There's no way for you. There's no way for anyone to find comfort in chaos. There's no way to find comfort in void, right? In just nonsensical evil or, in, in, or, or just inconsistencies in life, whatever it might be. Inconveniences. Neighbors who aren't acting as you want them to act. Spouses that you're struggling with, kids that don't seem to get what you're trying to communicate to them, yourself, in areas that you want to grow and you just don't feel like you're doing it. This is part of what the Greek word means. Uh, The the word in Galatians 5 is makrotomia. And so makrotomia is just from two words, makros, which just means it's far or it's distant, and then tumos, 
which means, it can mean heart, it can mean desire. But when it's used, just the word tomos is used, it's often translated as wrath. It's often translated as anger. And not just anybody's anger, but the wrath of God, the anger of God. So this, this, this word, the word patience itself, has a view to something beyond the present circumstance, has a, an ability to hold back our responses because we have a view to something that went before us and something that is in front of us that we've yet to attain. It goes against the grain of short-fused responses. And that's part and parcel of what the Spirit does in our lives, right? It's a long fuse, long-fusedness, right? And this stems from a long vision. Again, a long vision of life. One that maintains a sense of assurance that the difficult things happening right now aren't just a set of, of chaotic and meaningless circumstances or endless void. But that even my suffering that all painful things, to whatever degree they might happen, that I and others are going through, are occasions in which God, (laughs) who is the author of history, can display his beauty and more deeply root my joy. The essence of impatience, beloved, is short-sightedness. The essence of impatience is short-sightedness. It's an inability to see beyond the present moment. An inability to see the good that's in store because of the immediacy of the hardship. And it's not to say that it's easy. It's to say that it's inherently difficult. It's tremendously difficult to see, particularly in the moment. And again, the short-sightedness is twofold because we fail to see what God has done in the past and thus the assurance of what he will do in the future. Just think for a second about the passage that we read at the beginning, uh, James 5, uh, verse 7. The primary illustration that he uses at the beginning, he says, how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. The early and late rains. Now, most of us here are aloof to, of the enormous tension and anxiety that farmers in James' day must have been tempted to. Okay, and most of us here aren't farmers, right? Farm, uh, my wife's uh, grandparents were farmers and, uh, Their life is an incredible life. It cultivates patience. Because, particularly for the farmers in James' day, their whole way of life was 100% 100 dependent on something that they had absolutely no control over. Think about that. Everything you do, your well-being, the well-being of your family, is completely contingent on something you have absolutely no control over. Namely, the, the early rain that James talks about, which is the rain that came in, in, around October that would get, germinate the seed that they had just sown. And the late rain that comes in April that would assure that the, that the plant would actually mature. Right? Think about that. The farmer's waiting there and he's waiting and, and he's, his whole existence banks on the fact that it's going to rain enough and only enough in October, and that it's going to rain enough and only enough in April. And his whole well-being banks on that, and he can't see. He can't see it happening. It's invisible to him. And this is one thing that I've noticed in my life, beloved, and in the life of, of other Christians and others that I've talked with, unbelievers in particular. When I talk with unbelievers, this is a constant question. Not particularly about farming, but we'll keep on going with the farming example. 
couldn't God have given the farmer a clear picture in the heaven, right? Or like, a, like, a, like a window into heaven, just, or, or a phone call, something, right? You know, the rain's coming, don't worry. Or a picture in the heaven where you can see the storehouses of rain are about to come pour down. You're, it's coming, don't worry. And the, the farmer can sit there and he can watch. It's, it's early October, but he knows it's tipping, so he knows it's going to come. Or a phone call. It's going to be there at 7 in the morning, don't worry. Why allow for the possibility of the farmer's anxiety and uh, depression, sadness, angry outbursts toward others when the harvest doesn't happen according to his schedule? Why allow for that? Why? Well, let's bring it closer to home. Let's let's make it more personal. The the issue that most of us take, if we're honest, why do we have to go through the trials and the testings and the like Instead of just having our situations go through some sort of immediate or absolute kind of transformation. Why can't, why is it that when we come to Christ, we're not transferred to where our circumstances, our situations, our marriages, our neighborhoods, our churches, our friends around us, every, our city, the life in our city, the way that our city does stuff, the way that our country does stuff. Why is it that it doesn't get conformed immediately to the kingdom of God? Why? Why is it the stuff around us doesn't change? Or let's bring it even closer. If the promises of the gospel include that the spirit of God that we've been studying about is going to, be, is going to bear fruit in my life that's going to make me look more like Jesus, why can't I just be changed in an instant? Why is it that when I have a struggle... I can't just be changed. Why is it that when I have something going on in my own heart, it can't just be be done? Why? Why the time? Why the suffering? Not just my suffering, but what about the suffering that I inflict? that's, That's one of the biggest things that we should be wrestling with as Christians. Why? Why am I allowed to continue to inflict suffering on those I love? That's a big question, beloved. That's a big question. And I think at the end of the day, God could have done something like that. He's God, right? He could have taken it and he could have said, you know, circumstances changed, person changed, everything made new. We're done. He could have, but he didn't. And I think, beloved, that the scriptures don't take us to that kind of a, question. They don't direct our hearts to ask that kind of question. I think when we ask that question, like Job asked, like what we read about today in James, like what was read earlier, that when those kinds of questions come up, God doesn't give those sorts of answers. They're not, there's no answer to that question in the Bible. There's nothing. We can speculate, but there's nothing. There's no answer as to why God chose suffering as the means for us to be sanctified in this life. But he gives us a view of two things. And it goes on to my next point here. The suffering of the son is the first thing. If you want to turn with me, you don't have to, but if you want to, I'm in Hebrews chapter two. Starting in verse, uh, halfway through verse eight. Actually, I'm going to start in verse five. Give a broader context. 
Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. It's a lot, right? Subject the world to come. <laughs> Everything. Of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Let me read that again. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Beloved, it seems like God's done something way better. If it was our story, we could have said, yeah, let's just, yeah, you get saved, you come to Christ, everything's great. But it seems like God's built into the created order itself a means whereby his children will be shaped into his likeness, the very likeness of God. God, we will look like God. And this is how? Through walking by faith in the invisible God. Our greatest gain from our patience then is not just receiving all the stuff that God promises, but the idyllic circumstances, the idyllic context in which we do life, the family, the friends, the neighborhoods, the community, the political processes and everything else. But the greatest thing that we get from patience is the experience of God's active work in shaping us as his people into the likeness of his son. Bit by bit, trial after trial, day by day. Your suffering, beloved, and the fruit of patience that's being born in your life and exhibited, however imperfectly, right? We don't do it really well most of the time. However imperfectly it's exhibited in all of your relationships is the means whereby not just you, but others will look and learn what it means to be patient, what it means to go through suffering, and what it means to do it well. Your life, trials, weaknesses and all is intended to be a witness to God's kindness and mercy, both in how you respond to, your, to the suffering in life and in seeing God's provision of forming the likeness of his son in you. Beloved, we are intended to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. My sufferings are not, never meant to be done in isolation. They're meant to be public. 
that you might help me, that you might bear burdens with me. And your sufferings, beloved, are not meant to be done in isolation. Your struggles, your marital struggles, your mourning, your doubts, your frustrations, everything, financial burdens, whatever it is, it's meant to be done as a body. And it's meant to bring forth the likeness of the Son of God, not just in me or not just in you as individuals, but as a body that we might display the fullness of the goodness of a loving God who was made perfect through suffering. Your destiny, Christian, is to look like Jesus. That should floor us. Your destiny, what you're bound to, is to look like Jesus. And God doesn't usually mature his people immediately, right? We're hoping for a light switch, but God chooses to shape us like he shapes and readies and matures fruit, right? And the fruit of the spirit, not the light switch of the spirit. Um, Apples don't grow to perfectly ripen condition overnight, right? We don't notice the slight but definite maturing that goes on over the course of time, right? We, we, we look outside and we see the tree and we see the blossom and then we see the little, the little green thing kind of form and then the green thing gets bigger and it starts to look more like an apple and then bigger, changes color until finally it's ready. But if you were to sit there and watch the thing, it's, it's a practice in futility. You can't watch it grow. It is growing, but you can't watch it grow. Growth in grace, beloved, is on the exact same timeline, the exact same timeline. God grows fruit in us and it's fruit that lasts. And it's fruit that will last. Because it's his fruit. So the first thing that we see again is the, uh, the suffering of the son. And our participation is like his suffering. Building patience in us. Having a vision of the future. Again it says in, in Hebrews. In the same passage that was read today. Earlier in the chapter. In, in, Ephesians, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. It says, it says. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of your faith. Who for the joy set before him. Endured the cross. Scorning its shame. And is seated at the right hand of God. And for the joy set before him. He knew his God was faithful. He knew his father had not abandoned him. So we see the suffering of the son. And then the third point, we see the patience of the father. Um, there's a ton of places that you can go for this, but uh, my personal favorite is uh, in Exodus 33 and uh, 34. The Old Testament's hard to read, right? It's, it's, kinda, it's, it's challenging. And uh, it is, there's a lot of stuff that, that's really difficult to understand. Total side note, I really encourage you to read the Old Testament. If you're not reading the Old Testament, the first five books in particular... Ask an elder, ask somebody who you know knows the Bible. It's, there's priceless treasures in there which are meant to sanctify and shape God's people. So in Exodus 33, and I'm just going to give some context and explain what's, what's gone on here. So in chapter 32, Moses has come down from the mountain after being with God for 40 days and 40 nights and receiving the commands from God for how Israel is to behave in the world among the nations in which they're going to be going into. And Israel, while Moses is up there under Aaron's leadership, they, they persuaded Aaron, but nonetheless, he didn't give any pushback. They start engaging in idol worship. They create a giant golden calf and they start to worship it. They praise and they say, behold, Israel, your gods that took you out of Egypt. 
They engage in sexual immorality, in flagrant, just, just wicked behavior as they're worshiping this thing. They're blaspheming the name of their God because Moses didn't show up for 40 days and 40 nights. They've beheld what they've beheld in being delivered from Egypt and they're continuing to rebel, continuing to spit in God's face. In short, Moses intercedes. And by, the, and by God's mercy, he doesn't, God doesn't just strike the people down. He's ready to strike the people down. Moses intercedes and God doesn't. He spares the people. And then Moses starts to pray because then God says, okay, it's time, it's time to pick up and go. I, we've had our 40 days for nights on the mountain. I've given you the commands that I'm going to give you. Go forth as a people into the land that I'm going to take you. And Moses is sitting there thinking, these people are so stubborn. These people are so foolish. God, are you, are you, are you, are, you're going with us, right? Please tell me you're going with us. And he makes three requests. The first request is go with us. <laughs> go with us. God, if you're not going to go with us, then it's pointless because the nations aren't going to know that we're your people unless you go with us. He says, let me know you. Let me know you, God. Let me know who you are. At the essence of who you are, let me know you. And then the final request, he asks, he says, show me your glory. Show me your beauty. He says, God, you're going to be going with us. I want to know you and I want to see your beauty. It's this intimate, incredible conversation. At the end of chapter 33, this is how God responds to him. He says, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So he says, you will see, he says, and then before that he says, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. I will make all my goodness pass before you. So he says, Moses, you will get a glimpse of who I am. I will show you the essence of who I am. I will not show you the fullness of who I am, but I will show you the essence of who I am. And you get into chapter 34, and this is what the Lord says in communicating the essence of who he is. Chapter 34, verse five, says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This probably doesn't strike us as hard as it ought to, but let's just consider this just for a moment. God was being scorned, not just by the countless millions of people of the, of, of the other nations, right? The Assyrians, that there were peoples that were all over the, the world at that point who were engaging in idol worship, who were not giving God glory, who were not praising him as he ought to be praised. But on top of that, the multitudes of Israel were cursing God to his face, They were worshiping things that are not gods. They were not loving one another. They were behaving in ways that were conniving and wicked. 
And that was back then. Just think about this for a second. It's estimated that today there's 7.4 billion people on the face of planet Earth. 7.4 billion people. Take that number, 7.4 billion. Now, consider for a moment, how much do you sin in one day? Just for a sec, just consider that. Just think, how much do I, like a thought comes by, I'm tempted to do this, I want to engage in this. How many thoughts escape our minds that just run full bore against his goodness, against God's goodness and against his righteousness, right? How many sins, not just of commission, but of omission, not just the things that we do, but the things that we should do, but we don't do, right? How many times, husbands, how many times do you speak condescendingly to your wife and then neglect to affirm her, honor her beauty, her dignity, and your love for her? Wives, how many times daily do you scorn your husband for not doing something the way that you thought ought to be done? And then neglecting to affirm how much you trust him and love him and desire to hold him up and see him thrive in his varied responsibilities. And then do the math, beloved. 7.4 billion times however many times everyone sins a day. That's staggering. That in this age, beloved, God's name is hated and blasphemed as often as it is praised in the heavenly realms. You think about that? For every cry of holy, holy, holy in the heavenly realms, as the, as, the, as the angels and the hosts of heaven are praising God's great name, there's a counter cry of unjust, unholy, tyrant. You don't love us. You don't care for us. You don't know anything. Consider that for a moment. We, we can't fathom what that's like. That ceaseless decrying through word and deed of your name ceaseless, ceaseless. The bantering, the cries, the yells, the rebellion. Abject hatred toward the loving God who makes their life and sustains their life and yet what is his name? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is what James is referring to earlier. In the passage that I read, when it says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is merciful and compassionate. That's shorthand for what I just read from Exodus. Every breath of the blasphemer is given by the very hand of the God who's being blasphemed. Think about that. God's word, an active sustain of human life And he's holding these people's lives in his hands and they're cursing him and they're spitting at him and they're walking in rebellion against him. And he keeps giving them breath. Every breath of hatred, every breath breathed against the Almighty is given by the Almighty. What a marvelous, marvelous God we serve. While we draw breath, his patient hand is extended. His offer of life is continually at our disposal. And with a God like this, who never leave us nor forsake us, and with the empowering work of his very spirit within our lives, how can we not just burst with joy at the thought of sharing in his holiness and of sustaining a vision of life where he is enthroned and where all things are shaping together for our good?
This is our life. This is the reality of things as they are. In conclusion, just a a brief exhortation. Um, The past is done and gone. Can't do anything about it. And the future lies completely out of your control all the time, every day, completely out of your control. Discipleship is always in the present tense. Always in the present tense. We can be done away with excuses. Right? Done away with excuses. Right? You've been given today, beloved, to be faithful. You've been given today to repent, to turn around from an impertinent attitude towards your king and towards those that he's placed in your life. You've been given today to make strides in directing all of your faith, hope, and love in a Godward direction. Fixing your eyes on the great things that he has done in the past and considering the wondrous promises that he has laid up for you in the future and beloved that will bear the fruit of patience, of long suffering in your lives and in your hearts and will empower us as a people to walk with each other when the change isn't happening, when the circumstances don't change, when people don't get healed, when we sin, when we fall again and again, when our friend falls again and again, when people walk away from the faith, God is faithful and he will do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the ways in which you've um, declared your faithfulness to us as your people. God, we are, we are in debt day in, day out to the patience of a loving God, the long-suffering of a loving God, a God who puts up with, with so much. Lord, how, we, how could we not praise you? How could we not lift up our voices? How could we not celebrate, Lord? So do that, Lord. Do that in our hearts even now. Do that in our hearts today. Stir up in our hearts the affections that ought to be stirred up for your namesake and for one another. We pray this in Christ's strong name. Amen. Amen. We're going to take communion. And uh, communion is that sort of, that, that ultimate thing that we do week after week that is a look back and it's a look forward. It's a look back to what Christ has done and it's a look forward to what he will do and to when he will come again. It's the faithful practice in the present, a celebration of what he has done and who he has made us to be. Um, so come forward in rows and um, one of the elders will come up to lead us in prayer.